Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Amen. Please be seated, and we are going to be in Revelation chapter 21 today. Revelation chapter 21. If you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to turn there. Just go to the back. Um, And if you're in maps, back up just a little bit. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in one of the seats around you. Uh, They have a black cover, and if you do not have a Bible at home, that one is now yours. We encourage you to take it with you when you go. Since Easter Sunday, we have been looking at the effects of the resurrection, how the resurrection fulfilled so many ancient promises of the past, how the resurrection has implications for today, and how the resurrection has forever changed the future. And so we've been spending time in the book of Revelation, and our passage today describes the ultimate fulfillment of the entire course of redemptive history. In other words, this passage tells us where history itself is headed and how it all ends. And let this glorious good news sink in. It ends well. The entire book of Revelation is the record of a vision given to the Apostle John to encourage the church, as Jared reminded us last week, to encourage the church who at the time was under the persecution of the Roman Empire. Christians were being prosecuted, imprisoned, even killed for their faith. Revelation is not about raptures and doom and gloom, and it's not about charts and guessing how current events fulfill ancient prophecy. The book of Revelation is about hope for the church in times of difficulty and struggle. In the first chapter of Revelation, Jesus himself says this, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. So the reason the book of Revelation is written is so that we would fear not. And the credibility of Jesus to give those words to tell us not to fear is what? I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive evermore. It's the resurrection that changes everything. Christ has defeated our greatest enemy, death itself. What was thought to be the one threat that could never be conquered, what was seen as the final chapter to every life, what was deemed the inevitable end of all people, was vanquished by the the resurrection of Christ. That's the epitome of hope itself, because if the certainty of death can be reversed by Jesus, cannot everything else be changed too? Isn't everything else smaller than death? Fear not, he said. For I am the living one, the first and the last. At the heart of the Christian faith is that this Christ who made atonement for our sins, who gave us his Holy Spirit to guide us and and lead us into all truth until his return, that one day he would descend from heaven to make all things new, to redeem the entire world. That is the hope of our faith as Christians. There's this terrible myth going around, you see, that Christians believe in this extremely boring-sounding afterlife where it's sort of disconnected from any physical body and we float around like angels playing harps and if you're Van Halen smoking cigarettes. 
That's not what we believe. We're not going to turn into angels when we die, friends. That's not how any of this works. We're not going to be disconnected spiritual bodies that just float around aimlessly. That's never been the heart of Christian eschatology. So what does happen? What is our great hope, you asked? Well, our great hope is the redemption of all things. So let's see what that looks like here in the first two chapters of Revelation. The first two chapters, the the, sorry, the final two chapters of Revelation. It's in the first two chapters too, but it's specifically listed out here. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Here it is, listed right there. That's our hope. A new heaven and a new earth. Not that the dirty earth that we used to live in is some distant memory, but rather that the gap between heaven and earth is removed and that earth is made holy and pure and a new heaven and a new earth redeemed and brought together. The Greek word that's used here for new does not mean recent, like brand new. It means new in character and fresh. It means redeemed. So what will it be like? What will a new heaven and a new earth be like? What can we look forward to? So John's about to describe a lot of this here in Revelation. But remember, this is apocalyptic literature. It's a genre of literature. And so there's a great deal of imagery in this. John's point is not to paint an exact picture, although sometimes it feels like it with some of the details that are given. He's describing the indescribable. And he's using familiar imagery so that we can understand what it will be like, not know exactly what it will be. Part of the point of all of Revelation is that we don't know how it's all going to happen, how it's all going to go down. The point is that we trust the one who is returning to make it all happen. John is giving us a picture of something so beautiful and pure, of such great value that our minds cannot comprehend it. Let me show you. Revelation 21, 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Why that detail? Why the sea was no more? Because the sea was a symbol of danger and chaos. <coughs> in the early, in the ancient Near East, and looking back into Genesis chapter 1, the spirit hovered over the chaos of the waters. Now there's no chaos at all. Now there's no discomfort. Now there's no fear. The sea was a symbol of the need for order. And here we have God bringing the order itself. And in this order, this holy order, we see John's first two major symbolic images. I'm going to grab my water before I continue. I'm getting over a cold. It's not COVID, I promise. I've been tested so many times. <coughs> We're about to talk how there's, about, there's no more sickness in the new heavens and the new earth, too. excuse me okay so the first two of the of the major symbolic images that that john gives to us verse two and i saw a holy city a new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god prepared as a bride adorned for her husband the holy city of jerusalem throughout the scripture the, the the term itself means the city of peace but it has been ravaged by war for thousands of years. Even to this day, it is fought over and disputed. 
It's the holy city where the great temple of God was built that housed the holy of holies where God was said to dwell. It was the symbol of God and covenant with humanity. <coughs> and it was the city over which Jesus wept. It was the city of God, and, and it was where the presence of God was meant to dwell, and yet he wept over it, saying, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent it, who were sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. The city of Jerusalem is a symbolic of the wrestling of people with God, and not just ancient Jewish people, us too, our own wrestling with the offers of God, of his grace and his mercy and his glory and his presence, and yet we pursue other things. The city of Jerusalem is a symbolic of the people of God, us. But this new Jerusalem is different. And to describe it, John uses the most beautiful image that he can imagine, a bride being prepared for her wedding. That day that even in modern weddings, when, when everybody hears the sound of the organ or whatever else is playing, and everyone turns around, and the doors open, and the bride is there, and the groom locks his eyes with the bride, and everyone gets all misty. A bride adorned for her husband. This is how God is looking at his people with love and enjoyment and purity and expectation of a life together. The city is coming as a bride adorned for her husband. Jump down to verse 9 and he's going to describe this new Jerusalem. He says, Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls, we don't have time to get into all that imagery right now. He says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It's gloriously beautiful. Been to Jerusalem, and it is beautiful in its own way. It is not shining like a most rare jewel. It's a little dusty. It's a little broken. Uh, it's all kind of one color. And here, there's this new redeemed Jerusalem. It had a great high wall, he says in verse 12, with 12 gates. And he talks about 12 gates and 12 foundations. And he says, <coughs> at the top of these gates are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, and at the 12 foundations of the walls are the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. What is he saying here? He's saying that this whole plan of scripture that we've been reading and studying and learning and trusting has all been real. It's all happened the way that God has wanted it to happen in the way that he has planned. The 12 tribes of Israel point to the people of God in the Old Testament. The 12 apostles of the Lamb point to the new church, the people of God in the New Testament. God has always been building a people for himself, and here we find that it all worked that the plan was real. And so then, in order to save time, I'm not going to read 15 through 21, but, but it talks about how all of these jewels, all the gates are of these different jewels and, all of, and gold and onyx and silver and all of these things. And then it says, it says that the angel measured the city. And if you actually calculate the measurements that are in here, it's the, uh, the square footage is approximately the size of the moon. 
This is not a small city. The, the breadth of it, the measure of it, is larger than we could ever imagine. The value of it is greater than anything we have ever seen. The most opulent home, the most opulent hotel you've ever been in does not even compare with the glory of this moon-sized city made out of jewels and fine, precious metals. But see, the point here, friends, is not even the size or the jewels or the expense of it. The point is that even these created things pale in comparison to the Creator Himself who is at the center of this city. All of this, it says, is like transparent glass to show the glory of God without hindrance. You see what John is doing here? He's describing what he's seeing by saying, you've never seen anything like this. And this is what awaits the people of God. I don't know about you, but I get excited anticipating for a weekend at the beach and a holiday inn. And this is describing where we're going to be for eternity. If I can get through dark days by counting seven more days until I get to the beach, how much more an image like this can get us through our darkest days? And then he says this in verse 22. He says, but I saw no temple in the city. This is a big deal because in Jerusalem, at the heart and the center of Jerusalem, is the temple. Where inside the temple is the Holy of Holies, where God himself is, is said to dwell. And so it dominates the city. And he says, but there's no temple in the, this new Jerusalem. Why? There is no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. God himself is there. We don't need a building that represents him. We don't need a holy of holies that is only entered into through sacrifice because the Lamb of God himself has been sacrificed so that we can enter into the presence of God himself. The city, as it's described in these dimensions, is described as a square in the same way that the holy of holies in the, in the temple was described as a square. In other words, we are all fully, completely in the presence of God. We need nothing to point us to him because we can gaze on him ourselves. In fact, it says in verse 23 that the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. We don't even need the sun anymore. We need the sun for everything. Like, it's bad news if the sun goes out. I used to worry as a kid. I remember I learned one time that it took eight minutes from light for light to get from the sun to earth. And I had this re realization. I was like, the sun could have gone out like seven and a half minutes ago and I wouldn't have known it. We don't even need the sun because of the presence of God and his glory that is all around us. All right, so jump back up to verse, verse three. We've, we've seen this symbol of the the. The, the city and the bride. And then in verse three, John says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And listen, friends, listen to verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God will protect, he will cleanse, he will soothe, he will comfort. 
the very finger of God that carved the, the stone, the law of, of Moses into the stone tablets, that very finger will reach and wipe away our tears. The one whom we have longed to see, that we have sung songs to, that we have served in his name, that we have drunk a foretaste of from his cup, that we have prayed to, that we've cried out to, that we've even doubted or at times cursed, that same God, not only will he be present, he will heal. No more tears. No more death. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. It is the unspoiled sunset, the unsullied snowfall. It is vulnerability without fear, flowers without pollen. It's love without pride. It's life without hurt. It's basketball without Duke. It is un. It is unity without racism. It's feasting without food insecurity. There's no cancer. There's no wars, no conflict, no anxiety, no abuse, no wounds, no sickness. You're safely in the presence of God, together as his people, not lonely, not disembodied, and surely not boring. And God then speaks directly. Verse 5, he says, and he who seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. From the throne, he says this. That's a place of authority. In other words, there's no more politics. There is one government, and that is God himself, and he is a good and wise king. And he also said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So he says to John, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. It is done. Harkens back to two things. One, in Genesis, when he has created and he looks upon what he has created and he sees that it is good. It also points to Jesus on the cross who said, it is finished. We see creation, we see redemption, and then we see the fulfillment of this entire move and plan of God. The plan that we are a part of now, the story that we are living now, this is its ending. And just as the beginning has been trustworthy, so shall the end be trustworthy. And what does that mean except that we can trust and have hope in him now? He says in verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Well, that sounds awful. Yes, sin is grievous, and it steals the glory of God, and it destroys his creation. And in this city, in this presence of God, sin will not even be present. It won't even be there. It's not even that it has to be managed or dealt with or forgiven. It won't even be there. Imagine, friends, a life without the presence of sin. It's safe. It's glorious. It's restful. And it leaves room for the things that actually bring life. 
So we've talked city, we've talked bride. There's one more, there's one more symbol that we need to discuss here that John mentions here in the beginning of chapter 22. That this city that we see is uh, coming down from heaven is not just placed anywhere, but that it is placed in a garden. The garden imagery for us should bring up the very beginnings of the story of Scripture itself. When God created a garden and put His people in it and He would walk in the garden in the cool of the day with His people, Genesis 1 and chapter 2, before we messed everything up in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall and the entrance of sin. So chapter 22, verse 1 says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, and through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. If you remember back in Genesis, God created everything in beauty and in order. And then when sin came in Genesis chapter 3, he, he threw us out of the garden. But not just in a moment of angry wrath and throwing us out. There's compassion even in his removal of us from the garden because he says in Genesis chapter 3, now that they have sin in their lives, I don't want them to go to the tree of life and live forever in this state. And now here, the tree of life is freely available, bearing its fruit, open and accessible for all. We're back to the beginning of the story of the scripture. Redemption is complete. We are again in the beautiful garden with our creator walking in the cool of the day. And it says this, verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed. Genesis 3 has been reversed. But the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face and his name will be on their forehead. This is big news here, friends, because throughout the scripture, it tells us over and over again that no one can look upon the face of God and live because he is so holy, so pure, so beautiful, so glorious, and we are sinners. We are not those things, so much so that if we gaze upon his face, we could not do so and live. And yet here, in this city, in this garden, they will see his face and his name will be on their forehead. I want you to think of this. The God who you've prayed to and then wondered if he's heard your prayers. The God that you've worshipped and wondered if he's heard your songs. You will be able to look into his eyes. His kind and loving eyes. Verse 6, he says, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of spirits and the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. So he's saying, these are things that are coming. They, this, is, this is where we're headed, the trajectory of all things. And so what does that mean for us, friends, if this is our great and glorious future, exploring the beauty of God, knowing intimate relationship with God, being able to look into his eyes, being comforted by him and healed, to be together in unity, exploring the garden and the city, forever praising our Lord? 
Well, Paul tells us that the struggles of this world are not even worth comparing to the glories that will be revealed in us. We should ponder these things when the world seems too dark, when sin seems too mighty, and the attacks of the evil one seem too strong. No, friends, we win in the end. There is nothing that can pluck us from the hand of Jesus Christ who is delivering us to this reality. When we are tempted by earthly things and sinful acts, these images should bolster our our resolve to pursue righteousness. We can give up our vain luxuries, for they are no substitute for the reality of the new heavens and the new earth that belong to us in Jesus Christ. When it seems that history is on a downward trajectory, when wars and pandemics and broken relationships seem too much, We ponder the new heavens and the new earth. The guarantee of our future. The promise of God who has fulfilled all his promises until now. So that these words are trustworthy and true. This should not only give us hope, but also stir us to rise up in the service of this king now. For this world is not something that simply must be endured until it is discarded. It is the creation of God, and he has deemed it worthy to be redeemed. And our service of that redemption matters. Our ministry matters. Our community within the church matters. For these things are all foretastes of what we're going to experience for eternity. These are all things that are eternal. We get a foretaste of eternity now when we worship, when we drink from this cup, when we serve, when we grow, when we heal, when we forgive, when we dwell in unity. And in the face of difficulty and strife and fear and attacks on our church and our very lives, we stand defiantly in the grace of Jesus Christ, assured of his victory, assured of our final destination, and living in eager anticipation. For Jesus says in verse 7, Behold, I am coming soon. We long for that day. We long for that day when the trumpet will sound and the glory of the Lord will shine all around and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and sin itself will be destroyed. The reality of this, friends, not just the, gosh, I really hope that's true, but the assurance of this can deliver us through a life that is riddled with sin and brokenness. For there is a glorious guarantee from Jesus himself made true in his resurrection, that for eternity we will dwell with him. Until that day, no matter what we face, the images of this future overshadow all our trials. We may be afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We may be perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We may be persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We may be struck down, but we are not destroyed. We may grieve, but we do not grieve as people without hope. Because hope conquers all. So take heart, dear flock. Jesus is coming soon and will bring with him the new heavens and the new earth. And nothing can stand against the one who has died and has risen and who lives forever. Let us make ready our hearts in this world. Pray with me. Lord, when, when sin and strife and brokenness 
end. And evil is so near. We can get so distracted by the tyranny of the urgent and the things that are oppressing us that we can lose sight of where we will be in such a short time. Lord, let us ponder these things. Let us think on these things. Let us meditate on these things. Let let us grow in our confidence of the guaranteed future that you have promised for us through your resurrection. And let us be people of hope and people of strength. People who weep when weeping is necessary. People who, who grieve when grieving is appropriate, but always people of hope and of confidence and strength in you. When we cry, let us long for your finger to dry those tears. When we are afraid, let us long for your walls that will keep us safe. And let us remember that anything that would come against us pales in comparison to what you will provide for us. Give us hope. Give us joy. Let us worship well. Let us be the church and your people that live by this guarantee. Lord, help us to know that there is no defeat for your gospel or for your church or for your people because you stand victorious. Make ready our hearts, we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.